0: Please turn to Psalm 16, which should be on page 748 of your Reformation Study Bible. As we prepare this morning to talk to the dads in our midst, and I'll tell you on the front end, um, talking to the dads for me is always a little bit easier than talking to the moms. And let me explain why for a second, okay? Because it has nothing to do with the moms and it has everything to do with me. The reason is very simply that I've never been a woman and I've never been a mom, but I am a man and I am a dad, and so it's just easier. Makes sense? I mean, I did not, for example, have to send an email out to a group of dads this week like I did the week of Mother's Day with a group of moms saying, in essence, hey, help me to understand better what it's like to be you. Tell me what it's like. Tell me about the burdens that you uniquely bear. Tell me about the pressures that you uniquely feel. Because I've got stuff on paper. I think I'm on the right track. I've polled a couple of other ladies, and they've sort of said, yeah, I think you're going in the right direction. But help me clarify this. Give me some confidence that I'm on the right track. I didn't do that with the guys this week. I don't have to. I am one. And so I get it at least to some degree. In other words, I know, generally speaking, how dads are wired. Generally speaking, there are some exceptions. I know how dads think, pretty much. And I know the burdens that we uniquely feel, and I know the pressures that we uniquely carry with us day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, particularly these past few years. And I know that for most of us, not all, but most, the number one pressure that we feel is the pressure to provide. That's it. It's like when we survey all the different pressures and all the different burdens, that one sort of rises like cream, if you will, to the top of the glass, and that is the thing that we deal with and, and are pressured by most uniquely. And by the pressure of provide, by the way, let me define that for you. I don't just mean simply by securing for our wives and for our children the basic necessities of life. That's not nearly enough to cover the pressure of provide. I mean also to secure for our wives and children the right home and the right neighborhood and the right cars and the right clothes and the right place to go to school and the right summer camps to attend and the right kind of vacations and the right kind of experiences and fill in the blank because you know what? ever that is for you. You get the idea? The pressure to provide is much bigger than just our daily needs. It's a lot bigger than that. And I think that if the guys here today were willing to be vulnerable, honest, and transparent, and that is something that is tough for us as men, many here today would say that deep down in their heart, they are desperately afraid that at some point, if it hasn't happened already... They are somehow going to fail to meet the expectations of themselves, of their wives, of their kids, of their broader family. It could be their parents. It could be their in-laws. Of their circle of friends, good grief, we can't keep up. Of this society and of this culture. The pressure to provide is big. And I want to pause and kind of just talk about that and think about that for a moment. And what I want to tell you is that I think that Oftentimes, the problem, or at least a large part of the problem, is with those expectations themselves. In other words, I think that we expect too much of ourselves, and I think that a lot of times, everyone else expects too much from us. Every one of us, to one degree or another, has allowed what is called the American dream to define for us what success is and what provision should look like. And it's time for us to begin to question those things. Because what happens as a result is we become saddled oftentimes with unreasonable, and more frequently even than that, unbiblical expectations. The Bible has a hugely different perspective on how much we should keep, on how much we should spend on ourselves, on how much we should live upon, and on what we actually need than we do. So I think that oftentimes the problem is with the expectations themselves, but then there are also those seasons in life, guys, where no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we scheme, no matter how many hours we work, it's just not happening, is it? And so we kind of figuratively speaking walk over to our desk and we open up a drawer and we take out, you know, like a stack of those labels, those name tag, those sticky things and we get out our black sharpie and we write, figuratively speaking, failure upon it and we put it on our chest or on our forehead or both and we move through our homes and we move through our offices and we move through our lives as if that's what defines us and it's the only thing in the world that matters and it's neither, but it sure feels like it because this is our number one pressure. It's the biggie. And in light of the last couple of years and sort of the economic milieu that we have found ourselves in, man, it has been a tough couple of years for a lot of the men and a lot of the dads. And so my goal today is simply to encourage you from God's Word. It is to take you to the one who is your refuge, and who alone can preserve you and give you grace. And I want to do that by looking at Psalm 16, which is a psalm of David, and it starts with a shout, but please understand that it's not a shout of joy that it begins with. It is a shout of distress. It is spoken of out of some kind of circumstance that perhaps is even threatening David's life. He shouts out literally, preserve me, O God. You know, a lot of us are familiar with that one. Preserve me, O God. And then he says, for in you I take refuge. And sitting here today, we have no idea what the danger is that David finds himself in that so moves him to cry out like that. But we do know that it so moves him to cry out like that. Whatever it is that he's experiencing drives him to his God and drives him to publicly, because this is a public statement he's making, stake his fate on his God before his family, before God's people, and before everyone in his little world, and his world was actually pretty big, who were looking on and who need to see someone like David, like you, like me, trust in someone or something other than they do. It drives him to God, and it drives him to publicly stake his fate on God. And so then, whatever that danger was that has driven him to do that, no matter how distressing it is, no matter how despair-inducing it happened to be, whatever it was, therefore is, and here comes, good. It's good, whatever it was. You know, I think one of the problems that we have in evaluating the challenges that we face as dads, as husbands, as men, or just as anybody is that we're all working off of a different definition of that which is good for us than is God. In other words, good for us equals comfort. Good for us equals security. Good for us equals pleasure. Good for us equals ease. And for the record, God is not against any of those things. And in fact, when that's what we experience in our lives, it's because the sovereign Lord of the universe designs and manufactures those things for us and then places them into our lives as a gift. And therefore, when that's what we experience in life, we need to be incredibly thankful for it and receive it as from the good hand of God. But please don't confuse just the good things with God's definition of that which is good because the power and the glory of God is such that even the things that we label bad with our Sharpie pens and labels, He is able to take and make good. He calls tragedy for the believer good. That's the power of God. That's the mystery of His glory and ability. He takes things like marriage problems and calls them good, and wayward children and calls them good. Are you ready for this one? It's good that you're seated. Cancer, good. Disease, good. Financial problems, good. He takes all of these things and he works them together for good, and he can even take a crummy economy that challenges our self-worth because it decreases our net worth and increases our stress because it decreases our ability to meet expectations that are oftentimes unreasonable and even unbiblical. And He can make them good. In fact, they are good if they shatter the idols that we worship and look to for safety and security and help us to see finally, definitively, once and for all that money is a very, very fickle little God that doesn't deliver. If that happens, it's good. It's good if it forces us to make value judgments between things like obedience to God and luxury items. It is good if it forces us to make value judgments between things like helping needy people in the name of Christ and maintaining a lifestyle. If it forces us to do that, it's good. If we have conversations in our homes that go something like this, hey, you know what, honey, we can, you know, tithe this year or we can go on this vacation this year, but we can't do both this year. If those are the kinds of decisions that we've got to make, then it's good. We can invest in the hungry this year or we can buy new cars this year. And you know what? Sometimes we need to buy new cars, but a lot less frequently than we do. And if we have those conversations and we make those kinds of decisions and we have to face them, it's not bad, it's good. Tough times force us to figure out what really matters to us. They unveil our soul. They leave us nowhere to hide our depravity. And if that drives us to our God as it does with David, and if that drives us to stake our fate publicly before our family, our church, and the rest of the world, the people with whom we live, work, and play who are watching us, then it's good. Whatever danger David's experiencing is good. And so from the midst of his distress... He cries out and he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And then he says, I say to the Lord publicly before my family, before God's people, before everyone in my life who is watching, you see, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my God, not and then fill in the blank. And you've got to do that. What are you living for? Who is your Lord? Lord. You are my Lord, David says, and I want my my wife and children to know that, and I want God's people to know that, and I want everybody around me to know that. You are my Lord. And then he says this, and it should be translated like this, I have no good thing apart from you. Which means what? Well, it means that you can have everything that this world has to offer, but apart from God, have no good thing. Or you can have Him and have every good thing. David says, you, O Lord, are my Lord. He says, I have no good thing apart from you. And if a economy that challenges our self-worth by decreasing our net worth and increases our stress by decreasing our ability to meet expectations that maybe ought to be rethought anyway, causes us to see that, then it's good. So David has a family meeting. He gathers together his family. He gathers together God's people. I mean, he's the king. So, you know, lots of eyes on him. He gathers together anybody else who might happen to be watching. And there are people watching him and there are people watching you. And he says, look, I have a confession of faith. I'm going to make it publicly. And here we go. He says, God, you are my Lord and I have no good thing apart from you. And then he continues his confession. He's not done. And he begins to talk about God's people and the community of faith. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. In whom, he says, is all my delight. What he's saying to God and publicly to everyone else is, you are my God. And then he's pointing at God's people and he's saying, and you are my people. I identify with you. I am part of this group. And they're a part of me. And together we're on a mission and together we do life. And hey, you know what? Fakronomy economy that challenges our self-worth by decreasing our net worth, etc. Causes us to look at our life and to make those kinds of confessions and those kinds of identifications. And it's all good. It's good. David says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. But now he talks about a different group. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall what? Shall multiply. They shall continually increase throughout the course of their life and then into eternity. He says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. He's saying, their manner of false worship. I'm not going to get involved in that or take their names upon my lips. I'm not even going to make mention of them, he's saying, I so disassociate myself. And then he says again, the Lord, and then look at this, he says, is my chosen portion and my cup. I love that because he uses that little word my twice. He's saying, look, not only do I belong to God and I am chosen by him, but but he belongs to me. He's my possession, God is. We tend, I think, so frequently to focus upon what we don't have or maybe lately, upon what we've lost. But if that causes us to focus upon the one whom we do have, well, it's all good, isn't it? The one who preserves us and who alone can do it. The one who is our refuge, really, and he's it. The one in whom there is every good thing. David says, the Lord is my chosen portion, and the Lord is my cup, and in that cup is life, not death. And then he says, and you hold my lot. The lot in David's day was like a pair of dice, and it was cast to make decisions, to decide the fate of people. And so there's a sense in which David is saying, look, as uncertain as my life looks, as distressing as the uncertainty of that is, the reality is that my fate is dead center in the middle of the palm of the one who alone I can trust to determine it. It's beautiful. He's speaking to his own soul. You see, words of instruction, words of peace, words of faith. He says, you hold my lot, to which he then adds the lines, meaning the measuring lines by which his life is measured. A life that at times includes distressing circumstances. But what does he say about that? He says, the lines of my life, is the idea, have fallen for me in pleasant places. It's as though he's gone to look at a piece of land which represents his life. And he pulls up and gets out of the car, you know, and walks up the hill to look at his particular parcel that the Lord has drawn out for him as part of the whole. And he walks the entirety of it, its breadth and its depth. He sees it in all that it includes. He sees how it fits within the landscape of God Himself. He sees it when all is said and done, and He declares it pleasant. He says that it's beautiful. That's the next word He uses. He says, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance, and since it's a heavenly inheritance, there's nothing and no one who can take it away. And so he goes on and he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And then he says something that really kind of annoyed me a little bit this week. He says, in the night also my heart instructs me. And I know that what he's saying here is I bless the Lord in the day and I bless the Lord at night. And that's a poetic way of collecting up all of the time that he's actually awake. And he's saying all the time, even in the midst of my despair, I'm blessing the Lord for the counsel that he gives me, by the way, in his word, know the word, live the word. But what kind of got me was what he's focused upon at night, even in the midst of his distress. In the midst of David's distress, David is overwhelming himself with the counsel of the Lord that leads him to bless God. And in the midst of my distress, I'm usually just worried. Aren't you? In Psalm 4, verse 8, David says, "...in the midst of his distress, he lies down and sleeps peacefully." I take melatonin pretty much every night. Seriously. I occasionally, like, I don't know, every six weeks or so, I'll pop an Ambien, man. Not kidding. And if I'm really stressed out, well... Sometimes that doesn't even help, and it's not that unusual in those kinds of circumstances for me to roll around and roll around and roll around and look at the clock and look at the clock and look at the clock and, you know, compute and then recompute and then recompute exactly how much sleep I'll get if I can just fall asleep now. And most people call that insomnia. Do you know what the Bible calls that? Sin. And it's a sin that a lot of us dads these last few years have become very familiar with. Worry is a sin. It's a form of Christian atheism. It's us confessing with our mouths, if you will, that we really do believe that God is a sovereign God and that He has it all figured out and that He will in the end, even if it's, you know, after our days are over, work it all together for our good and it's all good and da-da-da-da-da-da on the one hand and then deny it radically with our worry on the other. Or it's a sin in which we say, okay, I I actually do believe that God has it all figured out and that He's going to work it all together for my good. Here's the problem that I have with that equation. It is that I just don't believe that whatever the good is that God's going to bring out of this is really going to ever be good enough to justify my having to go through this. And so in either case, we worry. And we toss and turn, and David, the show off, says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, he says, when the rest of you are freaking out, or maybe it's just me, my heart instructs me from God's Word. God's Word is central to this whole conversation. It's where the counsel comes from. It's where these categories of thought are established. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. David's like, I'm meditating on God's Word and I am blessing Him for it, even in the night. Then he says, I have set the Lord, how frequently? On Sunday morning, for an hour, all, You know, He says, I have set the Lord always before me. His distress and his despair and his schedule and his agenda and his worries and his concerns do not distract him from his primary focus, which is this God. He says, because God is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, he says, my heart is glad even now in the midst of danger. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also, he says, dwells secure in God's hands. And for you, he says of God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And hang on to that because David's body actually did see corruption. I and mean, I've been to his grave in Jerusalem now. You know, they didn't like open it up for me or anything. But I suspect that all that's there are bones. So watch that statement. Because he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is the grave. And that's true for every believer. There is a day of resurrection. We are not abandoned in death. But then he says, or let your Holy One see corruption. He says, you will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand, our pleasures for how long? Forever more. So then what's encouraging about all this? I mean, you know, what do you leave with if you're a dad? Well, I think you leave, or at least I hope you leave, knowing that these last few years that we've all labeled as bad with our little Sharpie pens, bad, you know, terrible. Well, they've not been bad if. They've not been bad if they've driven you to your God. They've not been bad if you've huddled with the fam and said, okay, look, Here's the one we're going to trust in this. They've not been bad if you've identified with God's people and publicly said, my God, my people, and together we get through it. They've not been bad if people in your world have watched you process this by faith. I had lunch with a good friend of mine this past week, a businessman in this community, very successful guy, incredible leader. I mean, I would love to be him in so many ways. Um, but it's been a tough year for, actually, many years now for him. He's in a very difficult industry. He's been significantly impacted. And I, I really, I mean, I knew, you know, I kind of imagined, but we sat down and talked. And so he gave me little snippets of what life has been like. And the cool part of the conversation was when he started saying things like, you know, I have learned so much about me through this. Some of which I didn't want to know. <laughs> but it's been exposing. I've learned about life, I've learned about business, I've learned about people, I've learned about God, I've learned about faithfulness. And he said, oh, and, and one other thing that's happened is, he said, this, this business partner of mine, through this experience, came to faith in Jesus. He said, I, you know, I, I really oftentimes sit around and wonder if that's what the whole thing was about. And maybe that is what the whole thing was about, but the part of it all that I loved of that conversation and I commended him for it, I said, that's what faith does. Faith says good things come from this. And then faith begins to look for it. And look, we don't always see it all, and sometimes we don't see any of it, but we will. We'll go to that parcel of land that is our life and see it all and go, you know what, all said and done, it's pleasant. It's beautiful. But he's looking for it. And you know, my dad used to say, it all depends on what you're digging for. If you're digging for dirt, you'll find dirt. And a lot of it. But there are nuggets of gold there too. And you'll find those, and they're priceless if that's what you look for. The last few years, tough for dads in particular. But good if they've driven us to God and to publicly stake our fate on Him. Because if you missed it, God alone can preserve us. And He alone is our refuge. And we've learned a lot of lessons in that regard, I hope. He is our Lord and everything else is false. There is no other God, you see, worthy of our worship. We have no good thing apart from Him, but in Him we have every good thing. He's our portion in our cup, Not only do we belong to him, but he belongs to us. We claim him as ours. He's my portion, my cup. And as uncertain as our lives at times look, the reality is that the dice or the fate of our lives are dead center in the middle of the palm of the one whom alone can be trusted with it. And the life that He marks out for us in the final analysis is beautiful and pleasant. His counsel is life, and it leads to peace and rest and even sleep. He is our guide and our strength, and in Him we are not shaken. And not even death can deny us the joy of His presence or the eternal pleasures found therein. And all of this is ours through the one of whom this psalm ultimately speaks, the greater Son of David who is Christ, the God-man whom David foresaw, who lived the perfect life we haven't lived, who died the sinner's death that we would otherwise bear, and whose body did not see corruption, for He was raised from the dead. And He comes to us, and He offers to us this God of refuge through faith in Him. So, I don't know about you, but I'm planning to sleep better tonight. I'd like to have all our dads stand, if you would, uh, just so I can pray for you guys. And um, let's do that. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise You uh, that You are our Father. Uh, That in You, each one of us dads has a perfect dad. Uh, That in you, each one of us who are called to lead and are given responsibility, uh, have one whose shoulders is actually big enough to handle it all, very much unlike our own. God, we bless you in the midst of uncertain times. We thank you in the midst of distress. We praise you for your word and for our Savior, the one through whom we come to you and find refuge. God, I bless these guys in your name, and I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen and encourage them in their hearts. I pray, Father, that they would come to you and talk with you and walk together with you and with each other as your people and find comfort and strength and joy in your presence, knowing that in you, Lord, no matter what happens, we and our families are secure. So we bless you and we thank you and we pray your blessing on each one of the dads here today. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.